Well, for many centuries, uh, people have been confused by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the sermon recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, uh, it's Jesus' big manifesto in which he, he lays out God's radical demands for his people. Like the characters in that Monty Python bit, uh, people have been wrestling uh, with the Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> uh, since Jesus first uttered the words. It's difficult to obey, uh, it's difficult to understand, and depending on how far away you were from Jesus when he uttered the words, it, 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 was, it can be difficult to hear. Uh, this morning, as we continue our study on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna actually going to look at one of its more confusing passages. Uh, I don't know if we'll be quite as confused as uh, Monty Python was, but uh, there is plenty to get tri tripped up by. For in this passage, Jesus wades into the topic of the Jewish law. In case you don't know, Jesus, the guy that we follow here, was Jewish. And Jews had a special identity as God's chosen people that was encapsulated uh, in their possession of something known as the law. Now, the law was composed of all kinds of rules and stories and, and prophecies that were bound together in the Hebrew Bible, which, is, uh, called, which we call the Old Testament, first two-thirds or three-quarters of our Bible. And God gave the Jews these laws so that they would know how to honor him and so that they would know how to, to do life together. But even during Jesus' day, there was an awful lot of debate about the Jewish law, what it meant, how exactly to keep it. And even for Christians, we might have questions about the law. If you spend any time reading your Bible, you're going to have questions about the law. Is it relevant for us today? If we should keep it, how do we keep it? If not, why not? With those questions in mind, let's go ahead and listen in, strain to hear what Jesus has to say. Let me go ahead and read to you Matthew chapter 5. Verses 17 through 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here in the passage, Jesus actually transitions into what is the biggest section in the Sermon on the Mount, a section that we're going to be studying for the next couple of months, uh, a discussion on the Jewish law and how it should be uh, uh, practiced. Now, like I said, the law was a subject of great pride to Jews. They believed that their possession of the law was one of the things that made them uh, distinct as a people. And they also believed that when the Messiah came, which they had been expecting for, for centuries, that the Messiah would come as a law expert. And to be sure, Jesus was that. Jesus knew the law inside and out. He proved that time and time again. In this way, he fulfilled their messianic expectations. But what scandalized everybody about Jesus was that he occasionally did something that nobody expected the Messiah to do at all. Occasionally, he seemed to break the law. He did work on the Sabbath, 
and he didn't seem to care much about Jewish purity regulations. So Jesus thus got a reputation as a lawbreaker. For lots of Jews, this was a problem. No matter how compelling Jesus might have been as a messianic figure, how much of a Messiah could he be really if he didn't keep the law exactly? People were thus confused. So Jesus feels the need to clarify, and that's what's happening in the passage. As he starts off, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, just because I break the occasional law, don't think I'm here to rescind the law, Jesus says. That's not my purpose. In fact, I'm not here to get rid of the law. What does Jesus say is here today to do? I have come to fulfill the law. We'll talk about that, but he goes on. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Until heaven and earth disappear, at least as we know it, not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen will, be, will disappear from the law. I grew up reading in my translation growing up, I grew up reading not a jot or a tittle will disappear from the law. Anybody grow up, re- grow up reading that translation? Not a jot or a tittle. The actual Greek in this phrase, it's actually not an iota or a horn will disappear from the law. Not an iota or a horn. It's the actual literal Greek. An iota is the smallest Greek letter, little i, and a horn is the Hebrew word for the little tag on a letter. So like that little line that you put on a Q, that's a horn. kind of juts out from the letter. So until heaven and earth disappear, not a single little i and not even a little tag on a cue, a horn will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, when is that? When will everything be accomplished? When will everything disappear, he says? How long will the law last? Jesus is here referring to the culmination of his ministry on earth. Everything will be accomplished. Everything that we know will disappear when Jesus returns to restore all things. So until Jesus returns, this is an actual picture of Jesus' return, until we see this, every jot, every tittle, every little iota, every little thing on a cue will still be in effect. Until we see this. So get this in your brain. Now, this raises some questions. First, how can Jesus say this when he himself breaks the law. Jesus says that every part of the law remains in effect until his return, but he routinely breaks the Jewish Sabbath. And secondly, what does this mean for modern, mostly Gentile, which means non-Jewish Christians? I mean, so much of the law is ancient. It even seems kind of backward for us. What about the Jewish feast instructions? Are we supposed to be doing that? What about the rules of, like, oozing sores? Like, do we have to, like, obey what the Bible says about our oozing sores? Uh, What about the, the rules on animal sacrifices? I mean, I take it none of you brought your animals to sacrifice here this morning. Should we be doing all that stuff? Jesus says that until he returns, not every everything still holds. 
You might know that in the history of Christian theology, the law is a hotly debated topic. There are lots of opinions about whether or not the law is still relevant and how. I mean, entire denominations split over this question. For example, there's a denomination that you might have heard of. It's called the Seventh-day Adventists. Anybody heard of the Seventh-day Adventists? Uh, they are Christians that take the Jewish law very seriously. They actually worship on Saturday because that's the, technically the Sabbath, and I believe they even have special dietary rules. So is this law still relevant like that? Are they right? Jesus seemed to say that they're right. Is the law still relevant? Opinions vary. Some people say yes. Some people say no. Some people say kind of. Some people say maybe. Me, I'm in the kind of camp. I think the Hebrew law matters for us today, and I think that because Jesus seems to say it, but that doesn't mean I keep every part of the law. I don't, for example, stone my children if they are disobedient, although there are days when that would be very convenient. Uh, and I'm okay worshiping on Sunday. I mean, technically what we are doing right now is, is, is contrary to the Hebrew law. We're worshiping on Sunday, not Saturday. I'm okay working on Saturday, which I do. So then what gives? I think the thing to understand here in this passage is what exactly Jesus means when he says he came to fulfill the law. What does it mean to fulfill something? Uh, theories abound. Um, some scholars think that when Jesus fulfilled the law, it means that he obeyed it perfectly. Some people think that when Jesus came to fulfill the law, it means that he protects the law. But the translation, or the, rather the interpretation that makes the most sense to me is that when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, he means that he came to unlock the law. To fulfill means to unlock the law. Jesus is unlocking what the law and the prophets mean and have always meant. Here's what I mean. If we read the Hebrew Bible carefully, uh, the, he, the, the law and the prophets that Jesus is referring to, we'll see something. We'll see that it's not really just a long list of rules and laws. It's actually a story. In between all the rules in the Hebrew Bible is a story of God selecting a people, giving them a special identity as his chosen people, as representatives on earth. God gives them a law to guide them. God gives them sacrifices uh, to show them his grace. God gives them the temple to be present with them. But they fail over and over and over again. The nation of Israel repeatedly fails, and they suffer the consequences. And they are actually quite hopeless as a result. But still, God doesn't give up on them. And he tells them that from their nation will come a Messiah who will die for the sins of the world and restore their nation to what it was meant to be. That's the story in the Hebrew Bible. This is actually what the law and the prophets are really all about. It's not just a long list of rules. It's a story with a conclusion. And when Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's saying he is the conclusion. He is what the law and the prophets have always been leading to. Everything in the law and the prophets points to him in some way. His ministry, his crucifixion, his re resurrection, his return are all anticipated in the law. Jesus unlocks the law and that he reveals what the Hebrew Bible was always all about. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, it's a story from Luke chapter 24. Uh, in the story that Luke tells, we meet a couple guys walking along a road from Jerusalem to a little town known as Emmaus. And these two guys 
Uh, this takes place after Jesus has been crucified, after he has been resurrected, but these two guys hadn't met Jesus after the resurrection yet. They were followers of his, but they hadn't actually met Jesus, so they're confused. All they had heard was rumors that Jesus had died and then been raised again, but they hadn't actually seen him. So one of them is, is named Cleopas. The other guy isn't named in the story, so we're just going to go ahead and call him Bob. So Cleopas and Bob, walking along, they're confused. Jesus appears to them on the road in a disguised form. They think he's just a fellow traveler. Jesus comes up to them and he asks, what are you discussing together as you walk along? What are you, what are you guys talking about? Luke writes this, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And I love this. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus leans in and he says, what things? Tell me about these things. These must be fascinating things. What things are you referring to? Now, Cleopas and Bob, as it were, explain all that's happened to them. And then Jesus speaks up. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, the law, and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See what I mean? Cleopas and his, and his friend Bob, they knew the law, but without Jesus to show them how the law was about himself, they remained stuck in their own ignorance, stuck in their own foolishness. And this is what I mean when I say that Jesus fulfills the law by unlocking it. He is the key to understanding the Hebrew Bible. Without Jesus, it's just a collection of stories and weird ancient laws. But it's not just that. It's a story with a conclusion. Jesus is the conclusion. Every part of the Bible, every iota, every horn on every cue, every jot, every tittle points forward in some way to Jesus. And you can't really understand what the Hebrew law is about without reading it in light of who Jesus of Nazareth was. It's like a good movie. I have a friend who actually is a film expert. He studied cinema in college. And I remember him telling me years ago that in any movie, or at least in any good movie, uh, every choice the director makes is important. So if a director shows somebody hanging their coat up on a coat hook, it's important. If a director like shoots from a certain angle, it's important. If a director like zooms in and shows like, you know, a woman, like, raising her eyebrow, it's important, it's meaningful, but you might not understand why it's meaningful until later. That's the key. You don't always understand how things fit into the movie until the end, but when you go back and watch the movie again, you see how those choices make more sense in light of what happens later. The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis is a perfect example of this. It only makes sense later when you know the conclusion. That's the Bible. The law, the prophets, the stories, the psalms, they're all there on purpose, but they don't make sense until you get to the conclusion. Jesus is the conclusion. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the movie. Now, what does it mean for us? Well, for starters, it means that we, we have to read our Bibles differently. We have to read it as a book that prepares us for Jesus. In fact, when you start reading your Bible in that way, it becomes much more interesting to read. 
It's one of the reasons why I'm such a huge fan of this ministry. It's called The Bible Project. If you've been around me at, for any length of time the past couple of years, I'm a total fanboy. I highly recommend this ministry to you. They've got tons of helpful videos and podcasts and articles. I don't agree with everything they say, of course, but on balance, they have just shown me how to read my Bible in light of Jesus. In fact, that's the very purpose statement of the organization, to show how the Bible is all about Jesus, which is a crazy thing to say, but it just is. So we have to learn to read our Bibles differently. But is that it? Is that all Jesus is giving us to do here? Just read your Bible differently? Is that the application? Just go home, read your Bible differently. No. That would be too easy. Christians like to make things easy. Jesus likes to make things hard. You see, understanding how Jesus fulfills the law is not just an intellectual exercise. Jesus also wants us to be obedient to what the law says. Let's keep reading and you'll see what I mean. Pick back up in verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same, others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by showing how it's all about him, but that doesn't mean the law and the prophets are now irrelevant to us. Jesus says that the Old Testament needs to be practiced. Even the littlest commands, even the least of these commands. If you fail to practice even the least of these commands, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you practice these commands, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But now we're getting confusing again. Like I said, even Jesus seemed to disobey the law. He didn't keep the Sabbath like he was supposed to. And now he's telling us to obey even the smallest commands, even the least of these commands. If we don't obey even the least of these commands, we're apparently like going to hell or at least getting a backseat in heaven. Really? I mean, all the least of these commands, even the one to not wear clothing made of different types of thread. That's actually the least command in scripture. Don't wear clothing made of different types of thread. So if we're wearing polyester clothing this morning, is that our sign that we're going to hell? Hope not. <laughs> Just to be safe, though, I did wear an all-cotton shirt this morning. <laughs> not only is this my ticket to heaven, but it feels oh so good on my skin. <laughs> you ever wear all-cotton shirts and just... Mm. Welcome to Rooftop. <laughs> so this is the question, though. Do we have to obey all the commands, even the least ones? Because that's a lot of commands. 636 or so. And how can Jesus tell us we have to obey all the laws when not even he seemed to do that? Well, on the question of whether or not we have to obey all the Old Testament laws, even the least ones, I think we can say with certainty, no, we don't. When Jesus says we must keep all the commands, even the least ones, he's saying that everything God gives us to do is important. If God says it, it's important. There's no lesser or least commands in the Bible. They're all important if God says it. What he's not saying here, though, is that everything that the Hebrew Bible says to do will always be important. God can change things. And he has. Take dietary laws. The Hebrew Bible 
told the ancient Jews that they shouldn't eat certain kinds of food. This is one of the ways that they were supposed to be distinct from other people and let the world know that God has called us to be different by eating different kinds of food. Later, Jesus comes along and calls those laws temporary. He says, God's purpose for you in this regard has been fulfilled. The purpose of that law has been completed. So Jesus says, don't worry about the food. You can eat whatever you want. He doesn't actually say that. (laughs) Eat whatever you want, because that would be a terrible thing to do. (laughs) What he says is, all foods are now clean. That law was for a purpose, and the temporary purpose has been fulfilled. So enjoy your ham sandwich. So Jesus says that some of the laws God gave his people were temporary. But not all of them were. Some of them, as far as we can tell, seem quite permanent. Seems like they'll last until heaven and earth disappear. What do we do with those commands? And what do we do with the way that Jesus seems to sometimes break them? Well, in order to answer that question, let's actually talk more about the example I've already cited, Jesus' breaking of the Sabbath. The Hebrew Bible includes as the fourth commandment God's instructions to keep the Sabbath holy by doing no work. Just like God did no work on the seventh day, so Jews don't work from Friday at sunset to Saturday at sunset. Uh, Now, a a lot of modern Jews actually still keep this law. Now, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus enters a synagogue on the Sabbath to worship. And what does he find there? A man with a shriveled hand. He also finds some Pharisees or religious experts watching. They're watching Jesus to see what he does. In their interpretation, healing someone was considered work. So no matter how how compassionate you might be, if you violated the Sabbath by working, you couldn't clearly be the Messiah. This was a setup. It was a test. Jesus looks at them and he asks them a question. He asks, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? They have no answer to this question, and then Jesus heals the man. So question, is Jesus breaking the law? Is Jesus breaking the law by doing work? No. He's breaking the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. He's interpreting the law correctly. Jesus was never a lawbreaker. He obeyed the law as it was meant to be obeyed. Jesus knew that the purpose of the Sabbath law is to bring restoration to people. That's what worshiping on the Sabbath was about, restoring people to God. Jesus' opponents were obeying the letter of the law. Jesus was obeying the spirit of the law by restoring someone to fullness in God. Basically, Jesus was interpreting the law in a way that practiced righteousness, which was the point. And this is what he tells us to do. Be people of the law, at least the ones that still hold, but in your law-keeping, practice righteousness. And a righteousness deeper than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says, I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you know the Pharisees. The Pharisees were expert law keepers. According to some standards, they are actually quite righteous. But they were constantly missing the point. The goal of the law is righteousness, faithfulness to God, love for others, service to the poor. 
The purpose of rules, the purpose of ritual, the purpose of religion is to produce righteousness. And if we're not growing in righteousness through our rules, through our religion, we're no better off than the Pharisees were. Let's spell this out in a more modern context before we close with some worship. Let me give you an example of what this might look like. Uh, You might not know this, but Christians also have rules. We don't quite have as many laws and rules as the Old Testament Jews did, but we do have them. We just use different words. We even have kind of Sabbath rules. We just just use different words to describe them. Uh, What's our Sabbath law? Well, here it is. I'm going to put it as simply as I can. Go to church. That's kind of the Sabbath law. Go to church. It's, it's, It's kind of a rule for Christians. Go to church. Christians should go to church. This is our version of the Sabbath commandment. And to be sure, I'm not just talking about going to church, right? I'm talking about being part of the church. Being part of church as a member of a family and having a place there and working together with people to praise God and to advance the mission. That, that's, I mean, Christians don't like to use words like rules and laws, but it's, it's kind of a rule. Being part of a church is kind of like a law. Unless they're extenuating circumstances, and there always can be, you know, a hospitalization or bedriddenness, you know, it should be obeyed. Now, of course, you know this, plenty of Christians just, just don't. Uh, Some studies, statistics are hard to pin down on this, but some studies suggest that as many as half of American Christians don't have a church. Half. And the rules are all over the place. Uh, Maybe they had a bad experience with church, so they're kind of done. Maybe they can't find one they like because they're kind of picky. Maybe they live too far away, you know, and people don't have cars these days. (laughs) Joking. Maybe, Maybe they think they, you know, don't need one. Honestly, most of those, they're just, they're just excuses. Christians should go to church. But here's the question, and this is what Jesus is zeroing in on. For what purpose? For the purpose of growing in righteousness. The purpose of being part of a church is to grow in righteousness. Unfortunately, here's the reality. I know as many Christians who go to church in the wrong way as I knew Christians who don't even go to church at all. One more time. I know as many Christians who go to church the wrong way as I know Christians who don't go to church at all. But the purpose of being here, the purpose of being here this morning is not to check a box. The purpose is not to get our fire insurance updated. The purpose is not even to sing the pretty songs or see the happy people. The purpose is to grow in righteousness. Faithfulness, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Plenty of churchgoers don't actually seem interested in that. Honestly, I'm increasingly bothered, I don't know how to say it, irritated, uh, irked by, by, by long-time church-going Christians who hang around churches for decades, but just don't look like Jesus. They go to church, they're very lawful, but they don't practice kindness. They go to church, but they make little effort to get the help they need for their marriage or their financial problems. They go to church, but they're not willing to have humble conversations and work through conflict. They go to church, but they, but they practice politics and business in just crude, worldly ways. Now, don't get me wrong. You can be a sinner 
and still go to church. I am living proof of that. You might be too. Any church-going sinners here this morning? Raise your hand. Okay, so like one quarter of us are church-going sinners. <laughs> so you can go to church and still be a sinner. What does the bumper sticker say? Don't honk at me. God's not done with me yet. Something like that. But the purpose of being part of a church, the purpose of the rule, is to grow in righteousness. So, are you? Are you growing in righteousness? That is the whole purpose of you being here. Are you growing in righteousness? And the stakes are high. Look again at what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're growing in righteousness, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, you know what word there I really don't like? It's that word. Certainly. You will certainly not, unless you're growing in righteousness, you will certainly, certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not want there to be any confusion here. He doesn't say, you know, if you're not growing in righteousness, you know, you probably won't enter the kingdom of heaven, but we'll see how it pans out. He doesn't say, you know, if you're not growing in righteousness, chances are you're not going to get in, but, you know, just go on and we'll, we'll, we'll give it a go. No, he doesn't want there to be any confusion unless you're growing in righteousness. If you want to go to heaven, you must certainly be righteous. So are you growing in righteousness? Do you even know how that happens? How does someone grow in righteousness? Well, there is no secret to this. There's no, like, mystery sauce or anything. Righteousness happens as we devote ourselves to following Jesus over the long haul. Righteousness happens as we do life together over many years on a weekly basis with a healthy church family. Righteousness happens as we read and study our Bibles and learn how all the stories, all the Proverbs, all the Psalms, all the laws point to Jesus as our Savior. Righteousness happens as we pray together, as we serve together, as we challenge each other. But mostly, righteousness happens as we confess our sins to God and receive Christ's righteousness as our own. So that's the irony of Jesus' words here. He says that you must be righteous in order to live forever, but we're just not that. We're sinners. But in Christ, we can be made righteous. We can be made righteous as the Spirit produces the holiness of Jesus in every part of our lives. And that's my invitation to you this morning. If you want to live forever, you must be righteous. There is no other way. That's the purpose of the law as it comes to us. But righteousness also comes to us through Jesus. It comes as we open our hearts and minds to what he wants to do inside of us.